0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Jeremy Suri, the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. This is his ninth book. He's also the host of a podcast, This Is Democracy, so we can ask him about that too. He's a professor of history at UT Austin, Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Surrey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Evan. Well, before we launch in, I do want to let you know and our listeners know that this is our sixth episode in our series on the presidency. It started the beginning of October, and we've done biographies on Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and covered campaigning, rhetoric, and the cabinet. Today, we're going to dive right into whether this job, the presidency, is even possible for one person to do. So think about it. They have to manage the world's biggest economy, the American president does. They have to manage the world's biggest military. They have to command that. They preside over rural areas, urban areas, maybe the most diverse population on Earth. And almost every country is either an ally or a sworn enemy of the United States. So, Dr. Surrey, are we kidding ourselves when we think that one person can do all that? You write that the office is set up to fail.
1: Yes. I think, Evan, you've got it exactly right. Um, This office began, as I show in the first part of the book, uh, as a very small office. The founders expected presidents actually to do very little. Their main job was to be a unifying figure for the country. They did not expect presidents to do any of the things you just laid out. They didn't expect presidents to be managing alliances and adversaries thousands of miles away they did not expect presidents to be these figures who had to manage an incredibly diverse population over a, a continent the size of ours let alone all the Americans who are doing business and traveling all around the world the office was not created to do all these things, and certainly the founders did not expect that one person would have so much responsibility. Over time, the office has grown, as I show in the book, and it's grown beyond the capacity of any single person. When someone tries to do the job well, they get overwhelmed, and when someone decides not to do the job at all, as we might have today, uh, then in fact we suffer as much. So we we need to desperately rethink what this office is and, and how it should be structured and who should do the work. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Um, How
0: was the office set up by the founders and why? Uh, Before I I have you answer that question, I'm reminded of President Trump saying, I have an Article Uh, 2.
1: What is in Article 2? Explain it. So it's, it's really important, Evan, for us to recognize that this was the most creative and uncertain part of the whole Constitution. Um, there had been, never been anything like a president before. The founders knew what Congress would look like. They modeled it to some extent on Parliament. They had a sense of what a Supreme Court would look like. Uh, they modeled it on their reading of Blackstone's Law but they had to invent, as James Madison put it, a secular, non-hereditary, democratic king. And that's filled with contradictions. They expected in Article II that the president would really do three things. one that uh, he, and it would be a he, would have presiding power, bringing the country together as a unifying figure. That's why they all loved George Washington. Second, that this individual would help mediate disputes. uh, And that's why the president has a role not in governing or running Congress, but he does have a veto power that can be used and he does have an agenda setting power. And then the third thing is commander in chief of the military in times of war, but they believed and expected that war would be abnormal, and that we would not have a large standing military. So the president would do what Washington did during the Whiskey Rebellion. When a group of Pennsylvania uh, citizens decided not to pay their taxes, he would ask governors to give him soldiers and he would lead them in battle. When the uh, citizens paid their taxes, he would leave and there would be no army and he would have no one to command at that point. So
0: they didn't (laughs) imagine that the military would become kind of this 24 seven operation that we see today
1: not only did they not imagine it, they couldn't imagine it. We were a small society of citizen, with citizen militias, uh, and uh, we were a society that was committed to not having a standing military. I remind people the Constitution uh, creates a Department of War and a Department of Navy. They were both expected to be small, the War, the Department, the Army, the Navy, obviously being the Navy, and they were not expected to even be unified. They were not expected to be part of one entity because the founders were very suspicious of large military establishments. They, they associated them with empires, not with democracies. You write that each major president has changed the world.
0: And um, I would argue, starting with FDR, that um, maybe all of them since then have changed the world, even if they're not considered major ones. But none, you say, has changed it as he would have liked. You say they have overcommitted, overpromised, and overreached. Of course, George Washington set in motion many of the customs of the presidency, the term in office, the civilian as opposed to the military, he was called Mr. President, all these other things. You argue the story of the impossible presidency though begins with Thomas Jefferson, who said the office should be kept in check because it it could lead to corruption and overreach. So I guess it's a two-part question. One is what did Jefferson think and... How did it get to a point where they have overcommitted, overpromised, and overreached?
1: Right. Well, well, Thomas Jefferson is fascinating for all of us, and I'm sure for all of your listeners for many reasons. And one of them is that... Jefferson was always divided against himself. Uh, He was the quintessential politician intellectual who had to use power, but was always uh, self-critical, at least in his writings to himself. (laughs) And He recognized that with the Louisiana Purchase, when he doubles the size of the United States and brings all of this territory and the population in it, under his immediate control as president, he's taken on powers that, as the Federalists criticized him, were beyond what were expected or even assumed a president should have. But he believed he had to do that to protect the United States because this was an opportunity to take this land from Napoleon and because the land was so valuable. But he was worried. He was worried how other presidents would misuse the power he was beginning to take on. And just as you said so well in your question, you can draw a line from Jefferson to the president of. Chief executives doing more and more with what was originally limited executive authority. Executive orders today, which are not mentioned in the Constitution, are a manifestation of exactly this phenomenon.
0: As they are crafting Article 2, and as they are imagining this office of the presidency, how much were they able to get their heads around the fact that George Washington wouldn't hold this office forever, and that they had to craft it for somebody who
1: might not be as as unifying as George Washington? Uh, They were acutely aware, the founders were, that as both Madison and Hamilton said, that power corrupts. And so they were deeply committed to creating checks on the power of the president. Uh, That is why there is an impeachment possibility, for example. Uh, That is why the president has to stand for reelection every four years. Um, And that is why the president has no money. Uh, there's no way, and uh, our current president has run into this problem now, there's no way for the president to get a dime of money that isn't appropriated by Congress. And so what they wanted to do was prevent presidents from doing what kings did all the time, which was to use the treasury to force their way uh, even beyond what the legislature asked them to do. That could not happen in our system. Let's talk about Lincoln, let's move it ahead a little bit here. Um, you argue that Abraham Lincoln
0: not only bound many states into one entity, but that he was the first president to broadly suspend civil liberties. Um, so, as opposed to weighing that particular decision, you know, we can leave the morality of, of of that to, I guess, other discussions. But explain why a move like that, going around Congress or the courts, became important.
1: Well, what Abraham Lincoln did, and he had to during the, during the Civil War, was he took on the power to control uh, individuals' lives and, as you said in your question, to abridge civil liberties without really any check, and he did that out of wartime necessity the Emancipation Proclamation, which we appropriately see as a major document advancing the cause of liberty in our society, it was actually a profound infringement on the civil liberties of uh, Southerners who under the Constitution had a right to own slaves and under what was a war order, uh, Lincoln took away slaves from Southerners and occupied areas where the Union Army was operating. Uh, that's one of many. He suspended a habeas corpus on a number of occasions. Uh, and he did this as measures of war. But what I try to show is that even though each of these instances can, and I think is justified in its own terms, they created precedents for presidents to do more of the same, and often without the same care or thoughtfulness that Lincoln brought in those moments. Between...
0: Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt um many would say he would be the next major president um what is happening in America and is there awareness that the presidency is on its way to sort of becoming the boiled frog that that <laughs> <laughs> that that um that things have piled up and that you know now the president is kind of taking these these sort of wartime um, liberties with um, what they can and can't do. So is there this idea that, um, whoa, the presidency might, get, might be getting too big for its britches or is it the
1: boiling frog, that it's one thing on top of another? Well, I think you have a little bit of both. It's a great question. Uh, I'm, I'm just finishing a new book now looking at the late 19th century because I think it's the best analog for the world we're in today. And you see from the time of Andrew Johnson's presidency, when Johnson succeeds Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination through Teddy Roosevelt a continual pushback against presidential power coming from Congress in particular. And that's largely because after the Civil War, Andrew Johnson uses many of the powers for the office that Lincoln took on and uses them to violate what Lincoln supporters believe were Lincoln's purposes. For example, Andrew Johnson takes it upon himself to pardon en masse Confederate supporters, even Confederate generals who went to Mexico after the war and pledged allegiance to the Emperor of Mexico, the French Emperor, And we're even possibly going to go to war with the United States. When they come back, Johnson pardons them. And that pardoning power uh, is seen as a misuse, misuse of presidential authority that Lincoln had taken on Lincoln pardoned many people during the war. And so Congress pushes back and you see a series of what we call dud presidents uh, because these individuals are very heavily constrained by Congress and by the American public. Very few of them serve two terms. They're generally one-term presidents until William McKinley at the end of the century.
0: And very few people today know the names of those presidents. Um, Many people don't go around
1: saying, I want to be the next (laughs) Benjamin Harrison
0: or Grover Cleveland. (laughs) Right, right. Um, uh, How? um, I guess the question then is, if we don't know their names, what was the mark that they left on the presidency
1: well this is where the boiled frog uh part of your question is so brilliant uh because even though there was this strong pushback uh they still were doing things the country was a much larger country with a much more centralized set of powers than the founders imagined. For example, these dud presidents had a great deal of influence over tariff policy. And as the United States was trading more, as we became one of the largest economies in the world by the late 19th century, tariff policy meant there was a lot of power. The federal government gained most of its revenue, there was no income tax, from tariffs. And the president could use tariffs, in the short term at least, to favor certain industry and to disfavor other industry. That's why Southerners were always critical of the Northern Republican presidents who they believed were too favorable towards cities like Chicago and not favorable enough to uh, rural areas in the South. So presidents, even though they had less, let's say, public uh, know, knowledge and they were given less public attention, they still had much more power to control trade and to control resources in a bigger country, which gave them more responsibility also. Well, this is going to be the first
0: time that um, that Benjamin Harrison and FDR are ever this close together in anything, <laughs> but um, let's talk about FDR a little. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the office, you know, um, perhaps aside from McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt is generally, um, at the risk of putting a broad brush here, um, is generally stagnant um, or at least is occupied by people who are generally forgettable. Um, certainly Woodrow Wilson would be in there, but there were many presidents between you know between lincoln and and FDR that have been lost to history but but now um, FDR takes power, and you write that he broke the mold that he tore down many of the last limits of executive power as he takes over the economy he places the presidency in charge of countless agencies programs he controls media in a way that no president had ever done before so does he understand that the changes he is making to the office would be
1: permanent? I think he does. I think Franklin Roosevelt, even though he wasn't a scholar, was very thoughtful, well-read, and informed on these issues. And in some ways, he had you know, grown up watching his cousin, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, do many of these things on a smaller scale. I think Franklin Roosevelt believed, and he said this countlessly in public and in private, that the modern world, a new world, a world of economic interdependence, economic volatility, military threats on the scale that existed then, that that world would require a different kind of president. And that's why he uh, ran for four terms. There was no constitutional limitation at that point. Now there is. Uh, but there had been a, a, a norm, uh, an assumption you would not serve more than two terms. Uh, and that's why he ran for four terms. That's why he took on many of these powers that were appropriately criticized, even though I think what he did with them was good for the country. They were appropriately criticized as extensions of presidential power that would never be uh, reversed. And, and uh, that's right. And... and um...
0: You know, I always think about this and I always wonder, but now, you know, the president is essentially inaccessible to the public. Um, but there was a long time where that was simply not the case. You could walk in and not only meet the guy, you could basically do a job interview and try to get a job from him. <laughs> um, you, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was famous for, and I think all presidents, opened the doors of the White House on New Year's Day to meet the public. Um, at what point does the White House become a fortress? not only a place to keep people out of, but a way to keep presidents in. At what point does it become a piece of news if you run into a president on a street?
1: It's such a great question. One of the assumptions from the very beginning, is that the president is to be connected to the people. Presidents are not to be kings in a castle. That's so clear. Every founding father agreed with that. And everyone who has served in the office until recently has said that. And as late as Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, even after an assassination attempt before his inauguration, and he's in Florida, in fact, in your state, Yeah. Uh, before the inauguration, which is then in March, and he's almost killed. In fact, the mayor of Chicago who's sitting next to him is, is shot and killed. Uh, that's why we moved the inauguration from March to January so there's less time for bad things to happen <laughs> before mm-hmm. the president's mm-hmm. inaugurated. Um, even after that, He's relatively accessible. When he would go on holiday, he would go with a very small group of people, and uh, he would drive in an open car and meet with crowds. Uh, The presidency as this fortified, inaccessible office, that really dates to after Kennedy's assassination. And that has to do with the security concerns following Kennedy's assassination. But it has to do with two other things as well. It has to do with the development of this huge bureaucratic apparatus, this huge government, which... Makes leaders of all kinds inaccessible. You know, it's hard for me to see the president of my own university, let alone the president <laughs> of the United States, right? It's hard You're for right. you to see the president of your TV station, <laughs> right? Uh, that's part of it. It's the specialization, bureaucratization, and oversized nature of our institutions. And then the other thing is that presidents are doing so much, they spend very little time interacting with the public. Uh, now, they spend a lot of time also raising money to run for reelection. election yeah, so they why have to do Why would they talk one, to you and me?
0: Yeah. Um- Uh, I get they're always on the phone. Um, uh, One of the things that I always think about, and and now we're off the beaten path just a hair here, but I always think about how McKinley is shot and Teddy Roosevelt does go there at first, but then they basically say, we think he's going to be okay. And they actually have to send park rangers into the mountains of upstate New York to find the guy to tell him that he has to become president. And I mean, that is just unthinkable to the modern person um, it, it, these it, days, that that the vice president would be out of
1: touch while the president was in danger. Well, what's extraordinary is even the president was often out of touch. For example, <clears throat> when Harry Truman goes after, soon after becoming president, he's been barely briefed, uh, he travels in the summer of 1945 to Germany to meet with Stalin and Churchill and Clement Attlee, who replaces Churchill as the British leader, he goes by boat. It was not safe for presidents to travel across the Atlantic by uh, plane. So he goes by boat and then he travels by plane within Europe. When he's on that boat, he's completely out of touch. Uh, And And that's Harry Truman in the 40s. That's Harry Truman in the 40s. He would go down to Key West. You've probably seen these photos of him in these ugly Hawaiian shirts. He would, he would go with what was called a stag party. He'd leave his wife at home, which is interesting. Right. He'd go with two of his male friends, and he'd go with two or three bodyguards, and he would literally be out of touch. They would have to call him on a payphone if they needed him. Uh, and the government went on. Uh, today. Today, what happens is, and this has been true since Kennedy, Uh, Wherever the president goes, the entire White House goes with him. My students and friends who work in the White House, they hate when the president goes on vacation because they have to go with him. Air Force One levitates the White House. And that means presidents are never out of touch. They never get to unwind. And they never see anyone who hasn't already been vetted by the people around them. So they're completely out of touch with the public.
0: Now, we can get to how all these things impact the person sitting in the office, but let's get back on the bat, the beaten path here and talk about Kennedy. Um, he, of course, spent so much time arguing that he was the man for the moment, and that the moment was fraught with danger and challenge. And we start to see the hat juggling here. Um, think of the, the enormity of these problems, and some of them would get even bigger after he left office, but you have Laos, you have the Soviet Union, you have Cuba, you have nuclear weapons, you have civil rights, to say nothing of the economy that the president is now sort of in charge of, thanks to, uh, to FDR. You say that he starts to view the presidency as the center of everything, that he's really sort of the first one. And so how does he go further than FDR in crafting this office?
1: Well, it's a great question. Uh, Kennedy begins his administration during the transition, by actually bringing in a whole set of historians who had written about Franklin Roosevelt, including Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And he realizes very much what we've talked about already, that the office has grown well beyond what you would expect, well beyond even what his father thought the office should be when he was ambassador to Great Britain during the Mm -hmm. 1930s. And so he brings around him the best thinkers, the best scholars, the best people to help manage the world. He creates uh, a national security council, which already existed under Truman and Eisenhower, but was really a kind of administrative body and makes it into a central planning body for nuclear and foreign policy and developmental security around the world. And he does the same on the domestic policy side. This is what David Halberstam famously calls the best and the brightest, bringing all these people together. And, And they really, as whiz kids, want to figure out for the best of intentions, how to better manage the world. And their view is if they don't do it, the world will either careen into warfare or into chaos. And they become sort of like part of the president's own head. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. They're part of the president's own head and they become part of the culture of the White House. And and again, Halberstam, I think, was the first journalist to capture this in the late 60s. There's a certain hubris. These are incredibly intelligent and usually well-intentioned people. But there's this hubris that they know better and that everything has to go through them. So they take on even more than they should take on Vietnam being such a great example of this, uh, as you already pointed out and so
0: Kennedy um, takes his job very seriously. Um, we've seen the interviews of how thoughtful he is, and he has great command of the 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 not only the content and not only the the data but he also. Um, is the type to pick up the phone. And I mean, it's a great phone call. He asks why the American hockey team lost by so much. Right, Um, Right? He's deep in everything. He's got his hands in everything. Yet you also say that he feels lost in his own power, that he's frequently sad because of all this. How did this happen to him?
1: Well, I think there are a number of events that bring home to him more than his advisors, because I think he's actually in some ways more thoughtful than his advisors. There are a series of events that bring home to him that how all this power can become self-defeating, how there's, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, Promethean quality to this, uh, that you're going too close to the sun. Uh, The first is the Bay of Pigs event, of course, right, where he inherits this. What he is told is this perfectly organized intelligence operation to overthrow Fidel Castro. And as everyone knows, it blows up in his face. Uh, And people forget that after that, after April 61, his presidential approval rating is really low. He's seen as not up for the job. He has a terrible meeting with Khrushchev in Vienna. And then I spend a lot of time in the book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And on the one hand, this is a glorious moment for Kennedy. He's able to prevent nuclear war, get the missiles out of Cuba. But he says repeatedly at the end of that crisis, we can't keep doing this. This is too much stress, too much risk, and I can't manage this. It's more than I can manage. And he knows how important he is because he's surrounded during the Cuban Missile Crisis with military figures who are doing their job, which is providing military options. And he wants to avoid that, he really does. He's scared of what the consequences of this power will be. You start
0: to insert, this goes back to the sort of trappings of the office thing that we were talking about, but you start to insert copies of the president's schedule during the Kennedy and Johnson years. How do these busy days impact the job that they have to do? I mean, just as an example, um, you know, I wasn't there, but but one gets the impression that Lincoln could spend all day on something and go and wander around, you know, the telegraph office for three, four hours getting messages. Um, and it, it sort of puts his head much deeper into a problem than this kind of lily pad skipping that these guys have to do now. So um, just expand on that a little bit. How sure. do the busy days that they now have impact? the job that they have to do. The Johnson uh, schedule you put in there, he's got his day in five-minute increments. You can't do your job that way.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly right. And uh, to me, this was one of the most fascinating parts of the research and why it's great to be a historian to go get into this original material, to look at their calendars. We have available, and your listeners can look these up, uh, online from any presidential library, from Hoover forward. We have the calendars for every president from Hoover through Obama. And you can see how they spend their time. Lincoln, as you say, even FDR, In their calendars, they have large blocks of time, not when they are fooling around, but when they can dig deep into an issue. The morning after the Pearl Harbor attack, FDR does not go to a whole bunch of meetings. He assembles his team around him, and they spend four hours thinking about what they're going to say and how they're going to respond. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he's briefed on the missiles, as I show in the calendar in the book, and then he has to run to lunch with a visiting group of dignitaries, and then he has to run to a press conference. He doesn't get back to the issue. You've been told that we might be on the edge of nuclear war. Oh, and we can come back to the seven hours from now.
0: and They actually have to lie to get him out of Chicago in order to, to pay attention to this quite big problem. That's exactly
1: right. And what's happened after FDR, and it is because of all the dynamics we've discussed, the size and responsibility of the U.S. presidency, is that presidents get the issues chopped up to them. They get bombarded with one problem after another. And instead of making strategic, thoughtful decisions as a Lincoln or Roosevelt would, they make tactical, quick decisions to kick the can down the road. And that's my explanation for why we haven't solved a lot of big problems in a long time. It's because we're trying to do too many problems at the same time and we're just kicking it down the road, looking for short term solutions, tactical solutions rather than strategic thought that requires time and depth. Right. And put, so it's like, um
0: let's put out the political fire now let's calm this congressperson down now let's calm the media down now let's put out another press release let's i, I yeah i get that um
1: it's like talk- if the yeah. analogy i use is it's like a parent as a parent of kids and i see this i've fallen into this i can spend the day running my kids to 18 activities and then at the end of the day i realize you know what they've learned nothing because we right. just run from one thing to another yeah. Um, so let's talk about
0: now um, sort of we're getting to the presidents now who we feel like we know personally, at least because um, the president is sort of always around. But but let's talk about Ronald Reagan. And one of the things I think that's so interesting is the federal budget really now is taking on the personality of the president. Um, after he leaves office, there's suddenly all this talk about deficits and whether we're spending too much money. And the budget is now like a thing. The budget is something that is like a personality and it becomes an issue unto
1: itself. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and Reagan to some extent weaponizes the budget because what he wants to do is if he cannot get agreement politically on certain issues, he's gonna use the budget to make the outcome he wants happen anyway. So this is what he does with increasing the defense budget. There is no consensus in the United States on how best to fight the cold war in the 1980s. But he's able to push through major increases in spending on defense, which lead to the creation, for example, of Star Wars, right, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was never actually popular, uh, but which he's able to use the budget to fund. And he pushes it through with congressional approval by trading off with Tip O'Neill and giving more domestic benefits to the Democrats in return for more military benefits for the projects he wants to pursue. Uh, and he's doing that really without a public mandate. He was not elected to do that. How do you
0: divide the recent presidents, Clinton, Bush, Obama, are they one era or several? Now, you know, I mean, certainly nine eleven is kind of this big dividing line in American history now, at least for the last 50 years or so. But, but so how how do you put them um how do you sort of explain the era of the clinton bush and obama era i would just just throw out there one is now famous for this political triangulation i've got a program um for everybody if you have a problem in america bill clinton has a solution for you and he's trying to cultivate all of these these fascinating little political alliances um and he makes the job presidential politics sort of even bigger because he becomes sort of a master of it, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, the next president, George W. Bush, says, blanket, I'm going to keep America safe. Um, that is an incredible um, uh, sort of statement that to make, a country as large as ours, that it could ever be truly 100% safe from terrorism. Um, and then President Obama argues that we can even be post-political, um, you say they're magicians of possibility. What does that mean, and and how do you explain the error of the last three presidents? Are they one or three?
1: I, I consider it one error. They're, very, they're three very different men, but I do consider it one error, and I put uh, Clinton and Obama together in particular because I see so many similarities uh, among them. But what I think connects all three presidents, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, is they're all elected in this post-Cold War environment where there's so much disagreement. The partisanship of today uh, has its origins then. And instead of actually building new consensus And that would have been very hard and probably very politically risky. What each of them does is to assert presidential power in very different ways to try to cut through and avoid having to build consensus. And that provides short-term benefits. In Clinton's case, the kind of triangulation that you talk about. In uh, Bush's case, fighting a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in Obama's case, the Affordable Care Act. They get things done but they don't build consensus. And so the power they've used as president actually triggers more resistance, which in the end undermines their legacies.
0: And during this era, presidents are suddenly blamed for everything. Um, you write about how they're basically pincushions, that the office has become so big that you know, this is the double-edged sword of it. On the one hand, yeah, you have all this power. On the other hand, you get blamed if, if there's a problem even in a far-off country that America didn't manage properly.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And, and some of that is this historical trajectory we're on. But it's also the flip side of these three individuals, in particular, uh, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, claiming that as presidents, that they can solve problems. And since they can't build consensus, since they can't share the stage with Congress, and it's not entirely their fault, a lot of it is Congress's fault, they assert more power, which puts them more in the public eye and makes them more of a target when people are unhappy uh, when the Iraq war goes south, for example. During your research, did you find
0: quotes from these last three presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, about um, about what you're talking about, that the office had become too big for them to manage, and that even if they didn't feel overwhelmed, they were overwhelmed?
1: Yes. I, they, they often don't say it quite that way, but they all worry, and, and all three of them in prescient, thoughtful ways about uh, the difficulties their successor will have. And it's not simply because their successor is from a different party. Uh, uh, Clinton, Bush, and Obama desperately wanted their successors to succeed. And they realized how hard it was. Uh, For example, uh, it's not just that George W. Bush believed that uh, Obama had a different position on the war in Iraq. He was desperately concerned that it would be hard to keep America safe in the ways he promised it would be. And he really tried to help Obama to do that and he was right that it was really difficult for reasons we all know. So now we're here, um, at the
0: Donald Trump era. Um, and this is certainly a different era altogether for the presidency because he has pledged to bust all the norms. We did an episode with somebody who, um, interviewed him and he basically says to her, um, why would I want to be in the president's club and why would they want me in it? (laughs) Um, you write, um, uh, The black president's rise seemed so fantastic and and, um, illusory that it came apart so fast at the center of American power. The presidency was too big and ultimately too demanding, even for these unusually able and precocious men. Perhaps no one could master the modern presidency. And then you say millions of voters understood that on some level. They chose a brash personality who rejected the entire history of the office to blow it all up. Explain what you mean by that and where the presidency is now under Donald Trump, somebody who had never held political or
1: military office. I, I, I think voters uh, of all kinds on all sides of the spectrum are, are actually pretty smart. I think voters might be uninformed at times, but they vote based on the world they see. They're people who are running businesses and managing their families. And they recognized uh, in 2016 that we were the most powerful country in the world, perhaps the most powerful country that's existed in the modern world. And yet uh, we had certain elements of our society that were just profoundly not working, healthcare being one of them. And um, that concern, is surrounded with a perception that we have resources, we have people, we certainly have talent, but somehow our government's not getting it done. And they were holding the president responsible. It's it's similar to those who were advocates of reform in the South after the Civil War, and then believed that the uh, governments that were created in Reconstruction couldn't work, so they wanted to blow up those governments. I think these voters looked to Donald Trump and looked away from Hillary Clinton because they wanted someone who would do something different, who would change how government works. The problem is that Trump has not tried to make government work. He has just destroyed it voters were looking for someone to make it work better and work differently. They were not voting to get rid of government. Last I checked, people cash their social security checks. Last I checked, veterans want their prescription benefits. Last I checked, people want a strong defense. They were not voting against government. They were voting to reform government. They thought Trump would do that, and that's where we are today. Well, it'll be fascinating to see in just a couple
0: days after this episode is released, how voters amend or don't their uh, their decision on on uh, the first uh, President Trump um, That's campaign. Right. Um, so in, J- in Dr. Suri's world, in Dr. Jeremy Suri's world, where he has ultimate power, you're not just the president, you are the all-powerful being. What changes would you make to the office to get it back on the right path?
1: That's a great question. It's what I start to talk about a bit in the epilogue. I've written about this a few other places. There's a big Rockefeller Foundation study I was a part of uh, for this. You know, I think there are three things among others I would I would uh, pick out. First, um, I do think we need to get away from this notion that it's one person. Uh, we're the only major industrial country in the world that puts so much power in one person's hands. I think we need to move to uh, perhaps a divided presidency, two different individuals. Vice presidents come to play this role de facto. And as you know, Evan, no one elects the yeah. vice president. Right? Right. So I do think we need to think about a system of maybe a president and a prime minister. We just need yeah, I think you mentioned Germany in the book. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and we don't have to go full fully um, parliamentary, but I do think we need to have that system. It's just too much for one president. Um, every corporation has a CFO and a CEO. We need kind of that system. Second, I think we need to invest much more in exactly what you're doing now and what you do as a career in creating public knowledge and educating the public. And I believe that can be done in nonpartisan ways. I do think NPR and public... Uh, public radio and others do this. And I think good reporting is about this. Doesn't mean we can't have differences, but we need to educate the public so the public understands these issues better. And then third, we need to limit the office and focus the office. We need to constrain it. Presidents should not They should not have any role in education policy. They should not have any role in many of the other issues. Abortion should not be a presidential issue. Guns should not be a presidential issue. We need to make a decision as a country for the president to do a few things and do them well. National defense, it seems to me, should be one issue. Anti-poverty, perhaps, should be one issue. Let's pick those issues and let's empower the office to do fewer things and do them better. How should we change our perspective of it?
0: as we go to to vote, or some of us have already voted by the time this airs, but as we go
1: to vote on Tuesday and count the votes, um, what should we expect of a president? I, I think, and this is where that second point about public education has to get involved, we do have to educate people that we're not choosing the person whose views we like as much as we're choosing someone who's capable to do the job, and they can be two very different Things Uh, We seem able to make those decisions when we choose business leaders and when we choose um, other kinds of figures. We need to learn to make that decision. The person who might be closest to you and to me in ideology might be the least qualified person to do the job. The person who's most qualified might only share half of my beliefs. And that's where educating people about what the office actually does. That's really why I wrote this book uh, to show people that presidents actually, as, as Mario Cuomo said, you know, they, they run on poetry, but they govern in prose and it's, it's how it's your prose that matters, not your book. You can give all the speeches you want. You got to run the government. (laughs) Uh,
0: Talk about your podcast a little bit. It's called, this is democracy. Just uh, explain what it is here. And, 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 you know, for people who want to do further reading um, not only into democracy and presidents and the presidents, but also, um, you know into uh, into your career, just explain what uh, what the podcast
1: does sure, sure, so this is democracy is a weekly podcast. We have a new episode every week, and it 's really aimed most of all at young people who want to understand democracy, want to understand our government, and want to make things better and We take issues uh, such as women 's suffrage, the hundredth anniversary of women 's suffrage, uh, prison reform, foreign policy, and we talk to uh, activists, policymakers, and scholars about how those issues developed, how we came to today, and then how that knowledge of the past can help us to do better going forward. So every, every episode is basically using history for positive reform going forward to make policy better. Is this an extension of the teaching that you do at UT Austin? It is. And in fact, the podcast emerged for two reasons, uh, because I found that a lot of my students and a lot of the audiences I would go and lecture to, you know, before COVID, I would give you know, 50, 60 public lectures a year. They wanted more. Uh, it's a nice way to stay connected to them. And then I have a 15-year-old son who uh, told me after he read The Impossible Presidency or pretended to read it, he said, <laughs> this, is, this is cool stuff, dad, but you know, my friends, they want to hear podcasts. Yeah. And, He's totally right. And you and I were talking about this earlier, Evan. I, I'm amazed. and such a positive story. How many young people listen to podcasts? And they listen to serious stuff like your podcast, like This Is Democracy. And so this is an effort to bring serious knowledge in this format to a young uh, audience. And, and every episode has my son, Zachary, on it. He reads an original poem to try to connect the topic to young people's thinking. And, and so we have a lot of fun with it.
0: Cool. Well, that, that sounds awesome. And I'm definitely going to be subscribing to that. Dr. Jeremy Surrey, author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Thank you so much for joining
1: us. Thank, thank you for having me on. And, and this is a great podcast. I hope everyone will listen to all well, of your episodes. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, and certainly check out uh, that book and
0: also his social media pages at Jeremy Surrey. The trick is that it's an I at the end, not a Y. So uh, Jeremy with an I at the end and Suri with an I uh, <laughs> at the end. Um, and thank you for listening to Axelbank Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.